So I think education is, is a big part of sustainability at, at events because if, if an event can do it on a temporary basis, then, then you can certainly do it at home. Welcome to The Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and on this episode, we explore the dynamic world of events with a focus on sustainability. We learn about kilowatt events and their impressive portfolio of large-scale events like the NFL Super Bowl, the ESPYs, the College Football National Championship, and Formula One Las Vegas. We dive into the intersection of event management and environmental consciousness as we uncover kilowatt events' commitment to sustainability. From comprehensive services to the creation of Cerro bins, which are reusable landfill, recycling, and organic bins that fulfill all waste management needs. Join us as we roll out the green carpet on this episode of The Green Hour. Think back to the last time you watched a red carpet ceremony or a big event like the NFL Super Bowl. While the focus is on the celebrities, consider the complexity behind the scenes. Imagine transforming Hollywood Boulevard into a televised red carpet event in just 48 hours. Or envision creating the layout and infrastructure for the college football playoff national championship game media compound. Supporting over 1,000 staff, catering, green rooms, and hosting a fleet of production trucks, all to be completed in a matter of days. Large-scale event design and implementation is very complex especially when considering the usual short deadlines to completion. Joining us on the Green Hour is someone who created an event management company that supports events like the NFL Super Bowl, X Games, the College Football National Championship game, and the ESPYs. Anthony Dittman founded Kilowatt Events in 2015 after a 15-year career leading event operations for ESPN. Kilowatt Events is an industry leader orchestrating high-profile events from televised sporting spectacles to red carpets. Acting as general contractors, they have an extensive client list that includes some of the most recognizable names in the entertainment and corporate worlds, such as the NFL and ESPN. Recognized for his contributions, Anthony secured a spot on BizBash's top 1,000 people in the U.S. event industry, specifically in the sustainability and social responsibility category. Kilowatt Events not only leads in event management, but also pioneers sustainability-focused gatherings. Beyond Kilowatt Events, Anthony has also co-founded Bins, which are reusable landfill recycling and organic bins that fulfill all waste management needs. He also created a new sport called Omega Ball that is redefining, reimagining, and revolutionizing the game of soccer with three teams, three goals, no offsides, and no throw-ins. According to Greenlee, the event industry as a whole is responsible for as much as 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. From the materials used, to the energy consumed, to the transport required for participants to access the venue, 
the resulting carbon footprint can be significant. Kilowatt Events has identified this problem and has ingrained sustainability into their DNA. The company gives a great blueprint to all event companies out there that work with large scale events. So welcome back to the Green Hour. Today we're joined by Anthony Dittman, founder of Kilowatt Events. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Anthony. I'm excited to dive into the event industry and talk about how sustainability is becoming ingrained into everything that you do. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So the first thing I want to talk about, Anthony, is you know your your experience at ESPN in the event operations space. Um, you spent 15 years at ESPN um, as the director of event operations, and then that that led you into creating this this company um, called Kilowatt Events. Um, but I want to start here and unpack you know those 15 years, what you did, what you accomplished, and again how it led you into creating the company that you run now, um, Kilowatt Events. Yeah, absolutely. I started with uh, at the X Games with ESPN in 1997 on work crew, um, just doing the the event. It was X Games three. It was our first time into California. They'd been in Rhode Island for uh, the first two editions of X Games. Um, went and worked another job after that after being on crew. And uh, 1998 was the second year in San Diego, and they offered me a full time job in the warehouse. So. Started pretty much at ground level on work crew, uh, then driving a forklift for a couple of years and then worked my way into the operations department, ultimately culminating as director of operations, as well as event director for X Games in Los Angeles, Aspen, uh, Barcelona, and Tina, France. Winter X Games and Summer X Games. So, so yeah, you started, you started at the very bottom and then you spent your time. You put in your work and then you became this director. And it sounds like you were you were over X Games, not only in the US, but all over the world, um, which which is super interesting. And, and I'll stop here for one second um, to understand that. So with these X Game competitions, um, how different would they be, I guess, in event setup in, say, California compared to Spain, like in Barcelona? Are they very different or is it pretty much the same? No, it was it was always there, even if we were in the same city. It was mm. always different because we were always evolving. That was the the great thing about X Games. And and at one point, uh, probably eight or nine years ago, the the only event that was still in the X Games that was in X Games One was the Vert Ramp. Every other event had had turned over and evolved. So um, certainly, working in in the U.S., everything just continued to get bigger. Uh, when we moved to Los Angeles um, in 2003, it was uh, the Big Air Ramp. So it was a hundred foot tall scaffolding in downtown LA, uh, which was a ramp, which would put an elevator in it. I mean, just all the power and engineering and permitting, um, soil testing. I mean, it's, it's just the events are incredible and events of that size are, are remarkable. We probably had 60 subcontractors working on that event. And that, that's really in the operations department, what we're managing. We're really the general contractor hiring, organizing, designing, um, the, the effort put forth and the beacon of, of communication between all of the other departments and stakeholders trying to accomplish the event, whether it's media, athletes, athlete relations, PR, TV production, TV operations, business administration, um, sports and competition. Like we're really trying to corral everyone organizing their agendas because everyone's agenda is the most important agenda, which mm. isn't always true. Like we have to be like, no media has the priority here. TV has a priority here or sponsorship has a priority. So we're, 
really balancing all that and creating the event. And, and there were huge construction projects. We, we brought in a hundred trucks a year for, for, uh, X games LA. It was a three or four week build. And we were in the middle of, of downtown LA at Staples center and there's other events going on there. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we'd be out there working, 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 building, building, building. Then you'd have to clean up the mess, have a Lakers game or a Clippers game or a Kings game or an event at the theater. Um, and then make your mess again, keep building. So we would do that over four weeks, uh, have the event. And then it was about another 10 days of teardown. So, um, from an international perspective, that was great because we would actually travel to the, these cities, uh, like Barcelona, I was there for six weeks, which really got you integrated into the community. It's not like you're there for three days and you're off to Paris to, to go see the sites. Like we really got integrated, which taught me how to travel personally. Like I, I, meeting all the people at these these places is really the best part of it yeah to your point on barcelona i was i was fortunate enough to go there earlier this year and um, has to be my favorite place i've ever been um i stayed in a stayed in a hostel there and you know just hung out with all, all europeans from all over the world and it was they're just a really cool time um really good people great food and i would say it's a very fast city people are always moving very fast uh, but architecture is really cool as well so i can imagine x games in barcelona was incredible to your point on talking about you know a lot of people don't don't really think about you have an event um but the takedown of that event how long it takes how much goes into just a disassembling an event i had on on the podcast probably months ago i don't i don't know a month She's the director of sustainability or head of sustainability and operations for the Atlanta Hawks um, in State Farm Arena. Her name's Sophie Armanakian. And I remember her talking about, you know, everything that goes into taking down an event like a concert. Um, like they had they had Taylor Swift there. She was talking about just everything that goes into taking that event down. And it sounds like in, in that instance at the X Games, what you were was a project manager on steroids. You're not only in charge of one project, but you're in charge of a slew of projects. I mean, you said 60 subcontractors, 100 trucks. You know, this is a weeks and weeks and weeks long process of getting the setup. That's hard to really wrap my head around and just understand the magnitude of everything that goes into that. So that's pretty crazy to think about everything. I mean, we we see the X Games on TV, but we don't really think about how it comes to be. Yeah, it's a balancing act and and you've got to have an, an incredible crew, which which we did. Our our crew was great. So it was it was a really good time. It was great traveling the world and, and doing these events. Mexico City I mean we did other cities that I didn't mention. Mexico City. We, we were down in Rio. Um hmm. so it was it was an incredible time. It was an incredible run and um I'm I'm thankful for that because that those experiences, obviously my work experience there as well as my uh, friends and colleagues that I, I made there, um, it, it still is a, a, a positive influence on on not only the business, but me personally today. But a mm. lot of kilowatt events success is due to contacts that we made at, at X-Game. Yeah, so, so that's what I want to get into next. Um, looking at your career from ESPN and now pivoting to um, the creation of kilowatt events, I, I can imagine, and you just alluded to it, all the contacts you made over 15 years and the people that you met and all the things that you learned, that's really what grounded this story on kilowatt events. So I just want to understand, you know, how this happened, how kilowatt events happened, um, how it was created, when the idea came to you, um, all, all the things that kind of made kilowatt events into a, a company for itself. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, after 15 years at, at XCN, I left in 2013 
went to go work for another production company for a year and, and just realized that that was not uh, the direction I ultimately wanted to go in. Uh, so I was very lucky to, to get a loan from somebody in, in the event business that we used often, uh, still use today, loaned us enough money to start the company. It was myself and, and one other um, castaway from the X Games. Uh, and we, we started Kilowatt Events in 2015 after that year hiatus with the other company. And um, we've, we're up to 13 employees now. So um, we, we've continued to scale even, even through COVID. Um, we, we developed a sustainability division at one point, which I, I know we're going to talk about. Um, and, and now we have a guest services division as well. So we've got eight folks, uh, sorry, 10 folks dedicated to the production side of things over here at Kilowatt events and three that are focused on, on guest services and, and guests experience. And they work on Super Bowl, NFL draft and, uh, F1 Las Vegas. But to your point, uh, the experiences and Rolodex coming out of X Games was was huge and and kill a lot of events at the beginning. One of our first clients was was the ESPY Awards, which which I had done previously as a full time employee at ESPN. I was able to take the red carpet um, opportunity and bring that to kill a lot of events, and then a, a couple of other um, events that we had worked on previously. Uh, directly or indirectly hired us pretty quickly when kilowatt events started so it was a, a good jump start of course balancing covid in the middle and and now we're on a, a little bit of a rocket ship which is great yeah yeah and, and I've, i haven't told you this anthony but um one of the great experiences of my life was back in 2019 uh, when i actually interned for nfl honors i was actually the the person designated at the red carpet to check everyone's um, tickets to make sure that they they had a ticket to come in um, and it was a it was an incredible opportunity i was a i guess a production intern and i can remember th there's one funny story you know i was trying to take the job seriously um and you know you had you could tell athletes when they're coming in these are big you know big people they're they're decked out dressed out and most of them I recognize, but there was one guy that was a little bit shorter. Um, and I was like, sir, can I, can I see your, uh, your validation? Can I see your ticket? And he looked at me and he was like, yeah, well, let me find it. Turns out he was a uh, Tariq Cohen, a running back for the bears. Um, but he just looked like a normal guy to me because, you know, he wasn't as big as everybody else. You know, it's a little yeah, sidetrack. Running but backs are tricky in that way. Th that was one of the good experiences of my life. And funny enough, here we are sitting in, in 2023 and I'm sitting with the person that, you know, led that event. And, and led the event operations for that. So this is this is full circle for me. It's really cool. And, you know, I just mentioned NFL honors, but I want to understand, I know what y'all do, but I want the, the the listeners to understand what all services that Kilowatt Events offers. We heard about NFL honors. You mentioned in a, the NFL draft, the F1 in Las Vegas, but what services does Kilowatt Events offer? Yeah, so I would uh, accuse us of being event operations, which is is just full service uh, venue planning. We and, and it might be easier to say what we don't do, which is marketing and sales, whether it's sponsorship sales or ticket sales. But if you have an event that you're you're marketing and you're selling tickets to, um, we would plan the rest of it. Um, also, if you were to break it down into like a music festival. We would kind of handle everything except the stage and except the talent. So those kind of carve outs, or if you wanted to break it down into a baseball game, we would handle everything outside the foul lines. So everything from parking all the way up to your seat, uh, the signage in between, services in between, restrooms, 
um, power, uh, fence, security, all, all of those things. So we'll, we'll plan that event operational as- aspect of the event. Um, and mostly what we do is televised. So it's a, a big enough event to be televised. We also do a lot of stuff inside. We're, we're more of a, a construction, build it, like the NFL draft. It's, it's all built. And there's a ton of stakeholders and a ton of, of people that work on the draft besides us. Um, but it's, it's building in a raw space and, and designing that, engineering it, permitting it, and um, executing it. Some people in the business world don't actually like operate it. Like they'll build it and walk away. We build it, we operate it, and we clean it up. And we, our intent is to bring the property back into at least the same shape, if not better shape than it was when before we got there. So you're building, I guess, different. I don't want to say props, but but different spaces for events. And then when you take it down, what you're saying is you want to keep some of that stuff so you can reuse it. Do you have like a warehouse where you store different pieces for events or how does that work? Yeah, we, we do. We, um, and, and for clarity, we don't own a lot of gear. Like we were, mm-hmm. like, like we said at the beginning, we're a general contractor. We hire people that have gear, but it's mostly rentals. So mm-hmm. um, there isn't a lot of waste. So whether it's scaffolding or tents or fence, or generators that all gets used at the next event. One thing we are cautious of is signage, like you're alluding to. We don't like to put a lot of dates and, and years on things so that in a lot of the events we do, like I said, they're big, so they happen annually, whether it's the Super Bowl, NFL Draft, Do Tour. Think we still do some things at X Games, um, a variety of other events. Um, so that, that is something that we counsel our uh, clients on last year we did the Wrexham tour for um for uh the welsh soccer team that's gained a lot of popularity in in the u.s because of ryan reynolds and rob um and we had a, a really good feeling that it was going to happen again this year so a lot of that stuff we counseled them w- which it is to to keep the the signage and we do have a warehouse where we can keep stuff for clients so we have stuff in here for the college national championship game of football. We, we keep some of their stuff, SB awards. We keep some of their stuff. We have Wrexham stuff in here now. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we, we do have a small warehouse, but we're not in the business of, of keeping uh, gear for shared events. If it's specific to an annual event, we will keep it. So were you able, were you able to meet Ryan and Rob at, at Wrexham? I, uh, Ryan, I did not see, uh, Rob yeah. came to a couple of the matches and, and, uh, I, I did not meet Rob, but I've I've met him before. Uh, again, the, yeah. the ex my my wife is my partner in the business, Jen, and and she really runs the company now. Um, and she makes fun of me because like I'll be like, hey, we got some new business, and she's like, let me guess, it came from X Games, and I was like, yep. And at, at X Games, when we go to Winter X Games, we we rent a house and in, in places like Aspen. I know it's it's horrible, and my roommate with uh with x game molly we used to be rob's wife's roommate in real life <laughs> so oh, wow. uh, we had the connection to to rob um but funny enough that's not how we got the business so that all kind of came full circle after yeah that's that's interesting I, I guess it's i mean everyone always talks about it's it's who you know it's, it's the connections that you make that ultimately you know i, I guess i don't want to say design your life but but sets you sets you on a path um, one big event that that y'all did very recently, um, and this this drew a lot of 
um, I guess, viewership on social media. And people have been talking about this forever. Was the F1 race in Las Vegas? I remember seeing just rough photos of this, um, prototypes of this, like two years ago, talking about how they were going to reconstruct the the Las Vegas Strip um, into a track for the F1 race. And I was like, "This is this is nuts! How are they going to do this?" Actually, one of my friends was trying to go to this, but the tickets were just so high, and it was just so hard to, to get a hotel that we ended up not going. But something cool that the Kilowatt Events did was lead guest services for this this huge event. So what I want to understand is, with guest services, what did that entail for an event like the F1 race in Las Vegas? What what all people were involved, and, and what all what all did y'all do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, to your point, it was a very expensive ticket, so guest services is kind of a critical component because there's high expectations coming into that race. And it's just like if you go to your local theater, local arena, there's a guest services staff there to to answer questions and take care of people. It's even more important at a temporary event. So we we do guest services for Super Bowl, NFL draft and and Las Vegas F1. And because it's it's such a it's always new. It's always in a temporary facility. All those events move every year. Uh, except F1, but F1 is such a massive event um, in a space that nobody's familiar with. No one's hmm. done an F1 race in Vegas. So you show up with your ticket and you know very little. Uh, so we devised a guest services program with our, our division that, that focuses on that at, at Kilowatt Events. Um, so we really run through the guest experience um, mentally, where they're parking, how they're getting there, how they're getting to their seat, where are the restrooms, Oh, I have the wrong ticket. I'm in the wrong spot. It's a huge footprint, as you know. So if I'm on the wrong end of the footprint, how do we help them? So really running through every possible scenario, positive or negative, that could happen, having a plan, hiring 1,200 event staff to be deployed at the event, training them, arming them with all this information so that they're capable of responding to somebody that has a problem if they don't know the answer not saying i don't know please wait here and let me get the answer for you and really just making sure that that experience is worth the expensive ticket um because not everyone's experience is going to go perfect especially in a, in a new venue like that so really being able to to pivot and make sure that they're having a, a great experience is, is what it's about and keeping people safe so obviously with that event, um, with F1 Las Vegas, y'all are just handling guest services. But, you know, some of these other big, big events that y'all do, y'all, y'all handle the whole thing, the whole yeah. event operations piece of it. And I mean, you mentioned earlier when you're at ESPN about, you know, how complex it was just to do the X Games. And, and what I want to understand is really the challenges, not only the challenges, but also the successes that you've seen in managing these large scale events with kilowatt events. Um, because I can I can imagine there there's so many challenges. Just when you have that many stakeholders involved in something, a couple people being out can really affect the whole production. So if you could just walk through some of those challenges that you've had when managing these very very large scale events. Yeah, I mean there there's dozens. It's uh, it, it's always a challenge. Um, and and the the trick about event planning is that. When, when the event starts, it starts. It's not like you're building a house and you're a contractor and you can tell the the homeowner, um, sorry, we're two weeks behind, go, but I'll get you a hotel room. Go over there. Like we're typically on live TV and there's no ability to pivot. And I mean, there's there's just been so many challenges and, and weather, doing, doing the winter events. Um, 
I think from a size perspective, Summer X Games was was challenging, but Winter X Games is smaller, but you have to get all that gear up the hill. So you're you're constantly like the, the snow cats and humans and like all the scaffolding all has to go up the hill and, and it's not indifferent from from other winter events, but these are all things that, like you say, the the general public doesn't see all the, the what's going on in the background. And then the the communication challenges of um, international work. Uh, a funny story was we were in Barcelona and in just you know norm, normal email. Um, Pepe, we're we're gonna keep this on the radar. And then uh, Pepe's assistant came in the next day and he was like, Anthony and, and Megan, I I uh, we we can't find uh, the the document that you put on the radar. Uh, we looked on Dropbox. We looked on our email. Uh, what is the radar? <laughs> you know, you know, and it's just a term we use in the U.S. that we're gonna, we're going to keep it in purview. But they literally thought it was it was a thing that we put a document in. <laughs> um, so I mean, it, I mean, that's just one little uh, nugget of you can imagine uh, the the challenges that we've had over the years. Um, it's funny, I I been on other podcasts and I've, I've had a couple of other in the, in the back of my head, but the, the challenges are, are just the, the coordination and communication. It, it's not that different. It's kind of like everything you learned in, in kindergarten applies to the rest of your life, but it's just implementing it and having a positive attitude. Um, you don't want to be the grumpy event guy because then people aren't going to talk to you and then they're not going to tell you something and you'd be like, why didn't you tell me that? Um, and it's really just important for us to share information um, when, when you're not sharing information at an event of that size, that's where, where things go south. Um, if, if the sports and comp guys decide that the corner of the park course, they, you know, the athletes want this to be two feet taller. Uh, so, and if they just did that unilaterally and didn't tell us suddenly our bleacher is, is two feet shorter than it needs to be to maintain what they're doing. And then the camera tower isn't the right height. And then, Oh, there was a sponsorship banner on that bleacher, but now it's blocked because they raised the course two feet and didn't tell anybody. So that the, the escalating need to understand the information and then it's up to operations to share that. So sports and comp tells ops ops goes, okay, we'll raise the bleacher, but then we have to tell TV. We have to tell sponsorship and tell the sponsorship banner producer. So the, the ripple effect of any decision on an event of that size is, is always what's, um, the, the biggest impact and, and the thing that you need to mitigate. And, uh, like I said, communications, the best defense against that. So, so I guess another challenge that's come into the event industry is this push to prioritize sustainability more. So, and I say the challenge, not, not meaning that sustainability provides all these challenges, but it provides more for the event industry to do, you know, more, more people to be engaged, more people to track things. Um, you might have to have different waste spins. I mean, it, it, it brings a lot more to, to your space and to your work. Um, and just the next segment I want to talk about is the event industry's carbon impact. Through some research, um, I saw that the annual carbon footprint of the events industry surpasses 10% of global um, carbon emissions. Um, so this event, I, I don't know the breakdown of, of what events are, are constituted in that percentage, but I can imagine that events in general, they contribute a lot um, of, of carbon emissions. Um, and really, when we're talking about things like music festivals, like big music festivals, um, they can generate a significant footprint 
of it said 500 kilograms of carbon dioxide per person, which is just pretty big. And I also wanted to, to, to allude to music festivals. There was one group that's, that's very, very famous around the world, um, Coldplay. Back in, back in 2019, they came out and said um, that they were announcing a commitment to not tour until a more environmentally friendly approach was identified. Um, and then two years later, the, uh, the band unveiled their next tour with a remarkable 50% reduction in carbon emissions. Um, and this, this achievement was realized by optimizing transportation through multiple concerts in select cities rather than a single concert in each city. So I, that was a long, long slew. But what, what I, I, I brought that up because I want to understand, you know, what is, what is Kilowatt Events doing? What have they done in the past? to look at sustainability and try to provide events um, with more of a sustainability mindset moving forward. Yeah, so um, we, we touched on it, but we had Kilowatt One for a while, which was our sustainability division, which we're really happy to initiate in 2017. It might have been a little ahead of the, the sustainability curve, as, as you said, uh, Coldplay really uh, was pushing that effort in 2019. Kilowatt One is no longer... A functioning department, but we operate sustainably at, at Kilowatt Events, and we encourage our clients to. Um, there can be an expense to sustainability, um, so that that's why we lean on the client. Do you want to? Do you want to support this effort? And and I think some of the things that we can do, or event companies can do, or event sustainability companies can do, and it's no secret, but make sustainability uh, a sponsorable asset and have enough creativity behind your sustainability program that you can bring a sponsor in and, and there's a story to tell there and the story isn't just necessarily around a public relations greenwashing effort around a, a company but also a story to, to tell people that you can make a difference so i think education is, is a big part of sustainability at, a, at events because if if an event can do it on a temporary basis then then you can certainly do it at home and a lot of the things that we do at, at events are, are the normal stuff that is, is a little mundane. So I don't think we need to get into it because I know your, your listeners are more savvy than that. But we certainly do recycling. Uh, we certainly look at alternative power sources for um, anything that needs power, whether we're taking it off the grid or we're, we're using generators. A lot of what we do is televised. So we, we rely on generators because we can't really afford to have the grid go down but over the last few years we're using ups systems which again i think your your listeners are savvy enough to know but we used to have redundant generators running for the event so generator number one generator number two they're both running at the same time if one goes down then the, the second one covers it and we don't lose the live broadcast now we've got the ups battery in the middle so if generator one goes down the battery covers uh the time gap between the second generator firing up and covering the show. So now at least we just have that single generator running, but we still have a redundant system in place. Uh, alternative fuels are a big thing that we push um, that are available, which is renewable diesel, which is different than biodiesel. A lot of the generator companies are hesitant to put biodiesel in their, in their machines. Renewable diesel is a new product, uh, relatively new that is is really sustainable and is really clean running um for for the machines and, and won't interfere with uh the, the the engine itself through research i saw that that one thing that y'all did which is which is really cool um and i think really shows a sustainability focused a mindset 
um, is you came out with this this bin called Cero Bin. You co-founded this back in 2019. This bin, this waste bin, really helps to collect waste, collect recycling. It really helps with waste management in general. Could you speak to what what Cero Bin is? Um, you know how that came to be, and, and how that aids in, in the event space and all the work that you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So, sir, uh, I got a couple side projects. Serabin's one of them. Um, I'll give you the background on it. So, Kilowatt One was doing the sustainability efforts around Aaron Style, which was Sean White's music festival in LA. Um, we had been doing X Games of Brazil for a couple of years, and uh, a good friend and colleague of mine, uh, Rafael Munero. Uh, had moved to the U.S. because his wife got a job at Google. Hoffa didn't uh, didn't know English very well at the time and was looking for work, so we put him on Kilowatt One, um, doing our sustainability efforts uh, around that, which is, is a lot of housekeeping, right? Um, but we had he had to assemble all the folding uh, paper or cardboard waste bins that uh, are ubiquitous at events. I've been dealing with these things for twenty years at the time, and I I despise them like they, anything you have to put a rock in to make it work in our century is is like a real head scratcher right and you put a rock in it so it doesn't blow away um but then somebody goes to move the trash can and it blows out because there's a rock in it you know the cardboard and then you throw it away at the end of the event any kind of water melts it the bag never stays in it so it's really a deplorable option to, to collect trash on site, but it's it's ubiquitous. Um, so he spent two days assembling the cardboard, going, "What am I doing? I'm just sitting here folding all these these flat boxes to make cardboard trash cans." Then it was going to rain, so he bagged it from the outside to protect it from the rain because they're all exposed, waiting to be deployed. Then he deployed them. He put four in a golf cart to go drive them around. Long story short, two weeks later, he calls me after that event. Says, "Anthony, I want to." I want to meet you for lunch. And he's in LA and I'm in San Diego. And I said, Rafa, just, just tell me what's up. Um, he's like, no, I want to show you this thing. So we met in Carlsbad and what he had done after spending so much time in Brazil, he was very familiar with folding furniture. He Frankensteined a folding table upside down and one right side up and created the first Cero and put a hole in the top. And that was the first Cero bin. So essentially what Cero bin is, is a replacement for the cardboard waste bin that you, you find at events. Um, it folds down to two inches wide for storage. So it's a 78-gallon bin, which um, is larger than a typical 45-gallon cardboard bin. It's dual stream, so you put two different bags in it. Have It's got dual lids on top, so you can have recycling and waste. And there's also a compost option. So it's dual stream, folds down to two inches wide. And, um, and that, that's really the, the two big benefits it's, it is plastic, but it's, it's reusable plastic. So you continue to use it over time ingrained in it is a signage opportunity. So you can drop signs into it. There's handholds for, uh, for you to carry it around. The lid is always attached, which is always a, a problem with regular trash cans and the bags have a connection system in it that you cannot pull the bag down in it. So the, the bag system actually works better than a regular trash can. So there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, and it gets rid of the, the cardboard situation, which isn't very functional on site and you don't have to throw it away post event. You get to keep it. So it's a pretty, pretty slick mechanism. Um, and we, we've 
sold probably about 6,000 of them in the U.S. They're, they're in use at SoFi Stadium, UBS Arena. Um, they're used at a variety of music festivals, uh, Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, and uh, a lot of the reusable cup companies. Are, are you familiar with the, the companies yeah. that are coming on site and reusing cups now rather than mm-hmm. recycling? They're actually reusing. Uh, our cup and turn are, are the two big companies uh they they've used cero bins for that as well hmm. so that that reusable cup that came from europe right i'm pretty sure that whole yeah i'm not i'm not sure i'm not sure yeah. but it, it's 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 a good thing it's, it's great yeah yeah i don't know if I don't know if if mercedes-benz stadium in atlanta does it i don't know if that's an idea but I remember there's someone that I work with that's from from the UK, um, and he does product circularity for our team. And he actually showed me a video of that a couple months back in the UK of, of beer, just beer glasses being reused. I mean, it was yeah. really cool. You just touched my mind, too, when you're talking about these closed lid systems that you have. There's this technology. Actually, I, t- I talked to someone from the government in Atlanta. I guess it was last week. He's he's the commissioner for the Department of Public Works for City of Atlanta, and he was telling me about these closed lid smart bins that they have around the city. I think they have a hundred of them right now, where they have sensors on top of them, um, and it tracks the fill rate of the bend. And th- this is off topic, but it just made me think about how this could be applied in the event space at a big event, music festival, whatever. Because you have, you can have these bins that are filling up rapidly, and then at, at some point you don't really know when they're full, so they can overflow. Th- this is just a question that, that came to mind again, but has there been a thought of adding some kind of sensor technology like that to, to your bins so you can track the fill rate and really know when these things are full and when you need to take them out and, and replace the bags and everything? Yeah, it's possible, I'm sure. I think our, our biggest defense mechanism to that was to just make them as big as as we could. So right. it, it's almost twice as big as a as a regular cardboard trash can, even though it doesn't really look like it, it. It is almost that much bigger. And also, if can make it single stream and put two bags in it, so that if if one bag is filling up, you can kind of keep maintaining it. Um, there's two schools of thought there. Like the, that's a, a lot more labor, right? So right. maybe maybe you don't want to do that. But the the bigger capacity is was our vision in, in making sure that they wouldn't overflow. Right. Uh, and then backing up a little bit, I want to understand, you know, obviously your background, you're ESPN for 15 years, and then you co-founded um, Kilowatt Events. But I'm guessing through your time in the event, event industry, there was a specific time when you saw sustainability really come into the industry, when conversations, you know, came around this, this aspect of let's make things more sustainable. So when did you see that happening? Um, it might have been might have been before kilowatt events. It might have been during your your tenure at kilowatt events. But but when did that happen? Yeah, it was I would say around two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I think um, would would be my best guess. And and really, it was uh, for those of your listeners that don't know, ESPN is owned by Disney. So Disney was developing environmentality. They called it. And they started integrating it into X Games. And um, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I was told at one point it was a little bit of a test case for how they were going to operate sustainability at the parks. They kind of wanted to use X Games as, as that testing ground, particularly with managing three streams, recycling waste and, and compost or organics, um, as, as the name will probably evolve into. 
Um, so we, that, that they partnered with us throughout time, uh, at the, during that era of X games and, and it was great. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm an operations guy, so I don't want to waste anything. I'm trying to operate as efficiently as I can and, and be on budget. So, um, certainly that was always intriguing to me and Preston, the, the Monday after X games or any big event, you're just like, you're amazed by, by the way, particularly at X games. Cause we also built a lot of things out of concrete, um, for the, the parkour. So they're trash rolling across the venue, cardboard bins blowing, jackhammers in the background taking apart concrete and dust flying and noise and everyone's gone all the energy's out of the event so so mondays are are pretty depressing um so certainly when sustainability came around and we started figuring out ways to to better mitigate our waste and and how we were using power uh, it was certainly something that i was intrigued by um so I, i carried that forward out of x games into kilowatt events ultimately into kilowatt one and and again going back to creating sustainability programs that are intriguing like at, at Dutor, which is our skateboarding event skateboards are made out of maple trees so we did a big promotion and and did a um an auction around raising money to plant maple trees so those are the kinds of like sustainable stories that i i think attracts people and young people into sustainability when you can really look at what the event is and come up with some creative ways to to engage them based off of what what's happening on site. Yeah, in sustainability we talk a lot about the social co-benefits of different projects and that's exactly what what you did um alluding to the the do tour. And one thing I really liked about the do tour that y'all did was education and storytelling around um the skateboard life cycle a lot of the work that I do now um, in my job is trying to make sense of what my team does on sustainability and and communicate and illustrate it in a way that makes sense to the external people. This is what y'all did in the do tour, um, talking about you know where where is the maple source from for the skateboards, what happens with recovery um, when skateboards maybe they're broken, they're they're out of use, what happens to them you know, when, when they're not, not in use anymore. And then talking about how can we repurpose this? We talk about, um, the circular mindset a lot in sustainability. And this is what y'all illustrated with education and storytelling in the do tour, which is really cool. I mean, you you talked about it with the maple, the maple growth and the deck sourcing of the actual skateboards. Then you pivot to the recovery. And then from the, from the recovery, Y'all actually showed um, the repurposing of these these um, old boards through a local artist, um, where they incorporated the recycled decks into a live on-site uh, mural. That to me is is sustainability in a nutshell. Yeah, absolutely. Even with this repurposing, talking about art and talking about murals, this is this is. I mean, you're hitting. We talk about ESG, environmental social governance. You're hitting the environmental piece with the sourcing of materials, the recovery. Then you're hitting the social piece with the co-benefits, bringing in local people from a community, putting art together, and then having that art in a city, which provides even more benefits. So I do, I do want to stay on this this do tour um, for a second, um, just because I know that that kilowatt one is no longer in use, but some of the stuff that y'all did when it was in use was really cool, um, where you measured carbon impacts of an event, and this is something that you did with this do tour. So I know that you didn't you didn't um, manage kilowatt one um, particularly, 
but I do still want to understand, you know, what what all went into a project like the Dutor um, four kilowatt one with with the carbon impact reports, with the waste management, all, all things considered. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, a variety of things. I feel like uh, some of it was defense and, and some of it was offense. So defensively, you know, it's easy to drop a, a dumpster or three different dumpsters in the the back of house area, but you have to defend against them getting contaminated. So a lot of signage, a lot of protecting the efforts that are going forth to have a single stream that that's dedicated and clean. Um, so s- sorting. So we'll we'll have the bins out, and in high impact areas, we'll have people there guiding people which bin to put their their refuse in. Um, and then we'll do another sort just to make sure it's not contaminated. And then it, it's really guarding the dumpsters to make sure that um, people, you know, mostly accidentally are not putting the wrong stream in, in a dumpster that we're protecting and, and sending to the composting facility, the recycling facility, or the waste facility to the point of we followed trucks before. Like we followed the truck out of the venue to make sure that the truck driver knew where he was going. Cause that's also happened to us where the driver doesn't necessarily know what he's picking up or where he's going. So that, that education life cycle from out of the consumer's hand into the recycling facility is very important. Um, and then uh, post event reporting is, is challenging because uh, you're, you're there post event trying to extract information from sponsors, the generator provider, how much fuel did you put on the generator? Um, what about the, the generator that was at the TV truck and not just at the venue? Um, so there, there's a lot of research that goes into post-event reporting. And, and as an event producer, you're usually on to the next event. So again, like we kind of opened up with um, Kilowatt Events was intrigued with starting kilowatt one because we wanted that to be a, a seamless operation where it wasn't a hindrance to operations or production that sustainability was trying to either have a sustainable operation or gather information post event so that we could s- see what our successes were i mean wh- one thing with kilowatt one when it was operating was we didn't do any greenwashing and and the, the report was very private until the client was ready to release it. And in some cases they didn't release it, but at least we had a very black and white report of what our successes and failures were. And there's plenty of failures. Like it's a hard thing to implement and and really reducing it down into something that's digestible, handing over a 40 page document on, on uh, sustainability isn't going to be the best path forward. It could be 40 pages, but you better have a a good summary page that people can digest. Um, Right. And, and I think ours were probably about 20, but but there was a lot of detail on backup, including res, re, uh, receipts from the dump, uh, waste receipts and weight receipts. Um, so we had all the technical background, but I think as, if we're trying to educate people on the best way to, to move forward, it's make it simple, make it easy, protect what you're trying to protect and, and don't lose sight of that because when, when it's contaminated, it's contaminated. Like it's... You can kind of start pulling some stuff out, but you you really don't want to get to that point. And then uh, creating a culture in which the sustainability team is is part of the team. They're 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 there to help, and everyone's focused on creating a successful, safe, and sustainable event. 
I guess it's similar because uh, I, I work in sustainability right now for for a large flooring company, and our team has grown a lot in the last year or two years because a lot of these a lot of our customers are are asking for more certifications around sustainability. They're asking for companies to be more sustainable. So our teams continued to grow. And I mean, if if our team wasn't there, then a lot of this, actually none of this stuff that we, we produce in like an ESG report that we produce in certifications would be done because like you're saying with Kill Out One, you had to have these designated group of people to do this because it's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of research. It's a lot of analysis. Um, so you really nowadays have to designate specific groups of people to handle the sustainability piece of the business. And I, I would even say with with an event, I mean, I can think about talking about the sustainability of an event. You're really talking about travel, talking about waste, transportation, energy, water, and sourcing. I feel like those six things are really all encompassing um, for an event. Um, and travel, travel can can obviously be a big percentage of carbon emissions um, just from mm-hmm. people. For example, right now at, in, in Dubai, COP28 is happening. And I think I read that 80,000 people are there. Just imagine, I know several people um, I know that are in, in Dubai right now and they're from the US. So it's like, that's so much carbon emissions for an event like that. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think um, another trick is, is just a procurement guide. Um, not, not necessarily related to that, but, but two events, your, your list of six. Um, triggered something in me that uh that reminded me of of our procurement guides so we would uh develop a procurement i mean it, it is what it sounds like right but keeping the bad things off the venue like a number six plastic um is is a really good jumping off point on on sustainability if the stuff if the hard stuff to recycle or compost or or waste isn't even on the venue then you're then you're halfway home. Um, the things aren't going to get contaminated as easily, and, and things of that nature. So we would have what's allowed, what's not allowed. You know, st- straws, those hard plastic forks, um, and of, and of course, some compostables are not compostable, depending on what municipality you're in. So you have to be cautious. Like, oh, I got a compostable sp- fork. Oh, well, they don't compost that kind of fork in in Colorado. Mm. So you really have to to do a little bit of research on the front end, but procurement guides is is something that we hadn't mentioned yet that is really beneficial to having a, a sustainable event. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of times sustainability revolves a lot of what it is is looking at the supply chain and then figuring out mm-hmm. at each supply chain how can we make this more sustainable, more efficient? Because at the end of the day, when I say sustainability, what I'm saying is efficiency. When you're looking at diverting waste, using less waste reusing materials it's very efficient um so sustainability and efficiency go hand in hand but the last segment i want to talk about here isn't about kilowatt events it's not about the cerro bin but about a new adventure that that you've been on um and something that's really cool you're creating a new sport and i i'm just curious about how this happened um maybe maybe it was your time at espn meeting all these people being around sports but but you've created this sport called omega ball um, and it and it seems like a a smaller field for soccer when you have three teams kind of playing at the same time. I could be getting that completely wrong, um, so that's why I'm going to ask the question. You know, what is what is Omega Ball, um, and, and how did how did even you create a sport? I mean, that's it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah, um, well, I've, I've been doing events for 25 years, and it, it's a young man's game. 
And uh, so I'm, I'm lucky to hopefully have this be my sunset. Uh, but Omega Ball is, is like you said, it's three-team soccer. It's played in the round. It's half the size of a traditional soccer field. There's no offsides. There's no throw-ins. And there's 10 times more scoring than, than traditional soccer. So it's high action, super fun, but it's, it's based on soccer. The rules are essentially the same. And you're trying to put the, the goal in your opponent's net. There's just two opponents now. So you defend your own goal and you can score in the other two. So it's, and there's five players on each team, 15 players on the field, uh, five, four plus a goalie. So it's, uh, it's super fun. It's super fun to play. It's super fun to watch. Uh, we've been on FS2 and, and ESPN2 uh, the last couple of years. Uh, we'll probably be on ESPN2 again this, this August coming up in 2024. Um, and we just signed on with Caffeine TV, which is a, a streaming service that's backed by Fox Sports. So we'll have eight hours on on caffeine TV coming up this next year, but um, yeah, the, the foundation of it was I, I said it's there's no offsides. Is I was trying to get rid of offsides in in soccer, um, and this conversation came out of two of my ex colleagues from from X Games. Um, wh- one was trying to start a, a minor league professional football league, and he was looking for an investor. So I went to another. A uh, friend, friend of mine, who's got a very well-to-do uh, business in, in Oklahoma, to see if he wanted to invest in in Jamie's football league, and his response to me was, "I think soccer is the future, not not football, American football." So I hung up the phone with him, and I was like, "I like soccer, but I'm not fanatical about it. Why is that?" And I was like, "Offsides. I despise offsides." So I thought, well, maybe if the field was round, would that negate the need for offsides? Would it create the negate the linear nature that exists in soccer which in almost my naivete about the sport i thought was the reason for the offsides rule but i drew the field in the sock in in the round put a goal at the top goal at the bottom it didn't really solve that north south play it was still north south and it wasn't solving the offsides problem and i was like well what if you added a third team that would create the the circular play that i was trying to accomplish can't do that in baseball can't do that in american football arguably can't do it in hockey you actually could do it in soccer so went back to bob who was considering that investing in jamie's american football league and said hey i had this idea what do you think he of course thinks soccer is the future because he owns a minor league soccer team so th- this is where i think most entrepreneurs would have hit the roadblock like what am i going to do go get 15 high school kids and paint a circle in their field and, and get that organized and test this out I had the ability, and, and this was Bob Funk's idea in the end. He's like, listen, come down to Oklahoma City, use my minor league professional. It's a USL team, so it's it's yeah. one league below MLS. It's their real full-time professional athletes. Use my athletes, use my coaches, use my facility. We'll do a test match. Went down there. This is 2020, and the guys had a blast. Like They loved it. They've been playing soccer for decades, and they came off the field loving Omega Ball. Um, so that, that was the catalyst. That's how we got there. Thankfully to, to my, uh, network for helping and, and even having the conversation to begin with to where, uh, where we were trying to start an American football league, not even a soccer league. And this is what spawned out of it magically. Yeah. Well, I think, I think I'm, I'm with you. Um, I've, I've gotten to soccer more lately, but offsides are just a killer. 
they, they just make you so mad watching the game when your team scores and it's offside. You're like, oh. There, there's not but, enough scoring as it is. And then you score right. a goal and it gets negated. And the game's yeah. only an hour long. So we, we devised it. You know, the today's audience doesn't really want to sit through three and a half hour games. Baseball is getting shorter with the pitch clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I've got my, as you alluded to, all my time at ESPN sitting in meetings about essentially making up sports so we're putting on tv action sports um even though it wasn't really my role to do that it was my role to execute the, the event around it I, I sat in a lot of those meetings so um we we made the game one hour long purposely so it fit in one hour of tv they're actually 39 minutes um mm-hmm. so it's very easy to program from a, a tv standpoint so we want to be a professional league on tv and concurrently we're um having youth organizations play in the u.s so there are several youth outfits that are supporting omega ball and um due to our airings on espn and and fox there's several international countries that are also supporting it from the youth level including uruguay uh, australia spain they're all officially playing omega ball in those countries right now um so we are excited for the international prospects as well so I just drew it up on, on a piece of paper I have here to try to understand. So it's a circular field. Uh, you have an hour to play. You have 15 people involved. And it's it's two goals, correct? It's still two goals, just like soccer? No, there's there's three goals. So you, you got, it's like that Mercedes-Benz logo, kind of like right. you know, zero to yeah. one forty two forty. Yeah, this is it seems like it seems like chaos, but it'd be so much fun to watch, right? Because yeah, that's 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 a lot of fun. Um I'll, I'll definitely have to have to watch some videos I, i'm guessing i could look at it on youtube or something look up omega yeah, Ball. yeah please please like our youtube channel um yeah it, it's it's super fun and there's there's just components to omega Ball that don't exist in other sports because there's three teams so if team a uh it's called a vulture goal if if team a is trying to score on team b team c can come up from behind steal the ball from team a and they score on team b so that would be classified and could also be a, a gambling um, proposition. How mm-hmm. many vulture goals were in the game? And then we see uh, vulture defenses where Team A is in the lead. Team B is right behind them. Team B is trying to score on Team C, but Team A doesn't want Team B to score, so they defend Team C's goal, mm-hmm. right? Because they don't want Team B to s- score. If they score, then they're going to get closer. So there's all these kind of little fun twists to the game that are right. totally legal. Um, and of course, no offsides makes it fun. Every goal is a goal, and there's 10 times more of them. And it's corner kicks only. So if the ball goes out, it's always a corner kick. And the ball comes back in like basketball. There's no pomp and circumstance after a, a goal. It's, you got to get the ball back in in five seconds. It's It's a rule, actually. So I just wrote down, do you have... Do you have free kicks? Like, let's say someone gets yellow cards, red cards. You might call it something different. I don't know if, if you do, but are there free kicks? No, and, and I said oh, it's a corner kick. It's it's We call it an edge kick, but people can conceptualize a corner kick better. So we have edge kicks. We have free kicks. It's, it's really the same rule. So it, it's great from transitioning out of soccer and into a mega ball because the, the rules are the same. Um, penalties and and things of that nature. So it seems like I know pickleball has gained huge momentum in the U.S. I, I love pickleball. I, I play a lot. But with with pickleball, they, they created this smaller court. So now a lot of people can play because there's not you're, there's not as much movement going on. So a lot of old people, older people are playing, maybe people that aren't 
I don't want to say as athletic, but people that, you know, might not be as good as tennis are playing pickleball and they can do this. With Omega Ball, you have a smaller field. There's not as much running. So it seems like to me, this sport could kind of follow the same, I guess, process that pickleball followed tennis. You might have soccer players that to a point where they can't, where they get to a point where they can't, you know, run the field like they used to. Now they they look at Omega Ball and say, hey, I, I can do this. It's a lot shorter distance. I still love soccer. Um, so let me do this. That that's just an idea that I had. I don't I don't know yeah. if that's that's no, something. It, it, it's totally true. So we feel like we have an opportunity to get people off the couch, kids off the couch that may be intimidated by this the size of a soccer field that don't want to run that much. And and like you say, and, and even with professional players, when I was down with uh Energy FC, the the USL team in Oklahoma City. I was starting to understand more about soccer because I, I really wasn't, uh, you know, I played soccer in second, third grade, but that was it. So I was really trying to get more information about soccer. And and they they said the same thing you said. There's guys that are professional athletes that, that retire early. They still got gas in the tank, but they don't necessarily, it, it's not only the grind of 10 months of practicing, running up and down a big field, but also the the travel grind of being a professional athlete, being away from your family, especially as you get older. So there, there's a lot of benefits and we really want to regionalize the, the sport so that you're playing really close to home and then you start filtering out and playing and, uh, you know, you won't get on an airplane until the very end of the season, which of course is sustainable. So we'll come full circle with that. Um, but yeah, man, everyone loves it. It's pickleball is fun to play, but it's not that fun to watch. Omega right. ball is fun. It's fun to play and it's fun to watch. And and even from a goalie perspective, goalies love it because they're in the game every minute. Where if you're a goalie in, in traditional soccer, you can daydream usually about half the game. Uh, right. Goalies have even scored in in Omega oh, ball. Wow. You can launch a ball from your goal, goal to the other goal. If if the other goalie got a little aggressive and came out and was trying to help his team. And they score. You, you better get back quick because the goalie can mm-hmm. launch it right in to your goal if you leave it unattended for too long. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, my, my mind's just going all over the place. I see this in the future for being a big thing for for corporate employees too. Like right now, like for my company, we play pickleball a lot. But something like Omega Ball could be a big a big like after work kind of game that you play, and it's easy. Uh, it's easy to get people together and to play this as a smaller field. You could have you know, five, five people from, let's say, sustainability team, five people from marketing team, five people from oh, yeah. operation. This it's really cool. It's, it's a really cool concept. Um, and I'm definitely going to look it up. But but I'll leave, I'll leave on that note, Anthony. Uh, I, I just want to say thank you for, for coming on and talking about a slew of topics, um, but mainly around around the event industry and about how you you see how sustainability is becoming ingrained into the event industry. Um, but yeah, thank you for sharing with us all that you have. Um, and I look forward to to following all your events in the future, following where Sarah Ben um, goes, and also seeing what, what happened with Omega Ball, because I think there's a lot of, lot of potential with it. Thanks, Preston. It's been a hoot chatting with you, and, and thanks for the, the support and interest. 